Well, good evening and thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Josiah Pettit. I'm the director here at the Westminster Bookstore. Um, and I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to put on a collared shirt for the first time uh, in several months and welcome you to our first ever episode of The Afterword, a conversation on books, reading, and the church. Here at the Westminster Bookstore, uh, we believe that books and reading play a profound role in the life and health of our churches. And we are passionate about serving readers, kindergarten up through MDiv, um, with the best biblically faithful books that are available. But right now, our ministry ends with a delivery of books uh, to your doorstep. And we've long wanted to do more to foster a culture of reading within our churches. Uh, so we're hopeful that these live uh, digital discussions will be a means to that end as we dig into books and get to know the authors that are behind them. Tonight, Dane Ortland and Johnny Gibson are going to be chatting about a range of topics from what makes a book worth reading to addressing that overwhelming feeling of owning too many books and uh, not being able to finish them. And uh, chances are, if you're, if you're joining us here tonight, uh, you've experienced that, and, and so we're going to talk about it. And then finally, we're going to dig into uh, Dane's new release, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Michael Reeves says this about it. He says, My life has been transformed by the beautiful, staggering truths in this book. Sal Albury says, This is breathtaking and healing in equal measure. This is one of the best books that I've read. And uh, I saw... I saw someone else on Twitter uh, say that reading this book was like dropping a mento into a, a bottle of Coke. Um, and if you have teenage boys or maybe have been a teenage boy, I, I'm sure you can identify with that experience. Um, and really, we, we as a team uh, read this book together uh, right at the beginning of this pandemic that, that we're all still experiencing. Uh, and found it to be winsome and comforting and really one of the, the better books that we've read. So uh, really that, that initiated this whole uh, endeavor uh, to bring in Dane and um, yeah, we're excited to, to hear more from him tonight. So with that, let me introduce you to Dane and Johnny. Uh, Johnny is ordained an ordained teaching elder in the International Presbyterian Church in the UK. He serves as Associate Professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he's a supporter of Liverpool Football Club and uh, worships at Calvary OPC in Glenside, uh, along with my family. We're the, in the, the noisy babies and toddlers section in the back. Um, Johnny's also the editor of From Heaven He Came and Sought Her and Reformation Worship as well as the children's book, The Moon is Always Round. Dane Ortland is the chief publishing officer and Bible publisher at Crossway. He's elder at Naperville Presbyterian Church outside of Chicago and the editor of Crossway's Short Studies in Biblical Theology series. Uh, so now as I, as I turn it over to Johnny, uh, let me ask, ask both of you, Dane and Johnny, uh, what was it that made you fall in love with reading? Uh, Dan, you were brought up in a, in a pastor's home, uh, so you were surrounded by books, I imagine, from the day you were born. 
Uh, what was it for you that made you fall in love with reading? Thanks, Johnny. First, let me say what fun it is for me to have this conversation with you and what a brilliant idea I think this is, not to have me on it, but to do this, to be in touch with your uh, the readers and the people at the bookstore is serving um, after they've sent books out to people. I love this idea. Um, I don't really remember ever disliking reading. Uh, I grew up, as you say, in a house overflowing with books. Um, to me, a normal house is a house filled with books. Uh, I've always loved reading. Uh, to me, you know, life without books is just about one small step shy of life without breathing, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Uh, was there a particular book or author that um, captivated you early on? Hands down, C.S. Lewis, uh, maybe a predictable answer, but uh, you, you, he cannot be improved on. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, first the Narnia books, but then moving on to his other writings, just the, the crystal clarity, Johnny, wedded with um, effortless prose, wedded with, you know, I, I think the genius of his writing is a, a deep structural understanding of of the longings of the human heart that comes across in many of his of his writings. And there's just nothing like it. So for me, it was Lewis. Yeah. Well, look, as a fellow Ulster man, I'm not going to disagree with you. Ah. He, he was uh, brought up just down the road in Belfast from where I was brought up. So uh mm. And uh, I have a, a similar love for Lewis. I discovered Lewis in my uh, time at Moore College. I was on a mission week doing evangelism and the church didn't have a lot of activities. It was a quiet mission and I was in my host's home and I found a, a volume of collected essays by C.S. Lewis. Mm. And I, I just devoured them, you know, the weight of glory, mm. uh, studying in, in wartime, uh, meditations in a tool shed those kind of essays that just sort of set my heart aflame uh, and an imagination of who God was and, the, you know, how much we uh, long for him without realizing it. I, lo I love that collection of essays. It's probably the worst titled essays in the history of all literature. I think one of the essays in that volume is called Some Thoughts. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 in inverse proportion, the quality of the content of those essays uh, just wonderful. Yeah. Now you've spoken about, um, you know, what makes for good writing there and C.S. Lewis being a, a, a great example. What do you think makes for good reading? Mm. Um, slow reading, uh, undistracted re reading, um, charitable reading, you know, tr trying to uh, open-heartedly, open-mindedly hear what the author is trying to say. Um, I would say reading for enjoyment wouldn't you say Johnny makes for um, really good reading? If you're reading something just so you can tell other people that you've read that book and that's your motive, uh, that's using a book. That's not reading a book. Hmm. And do you uh, find much time for that kind of pleasure reading? You, you're, uh, you know, you work at a publishing house. Uh, you edit books. You're, you, you look oversee the ESV Bibles, the different kinds that come out. Uh, you write, and so you're doing a lot of reading for your writing. Do you, do you get time to read for pleasure these days, or do you find yourself doing a lot of work reading? Um, yeah, there is a lot of work reading, but there's always Calvin and Hobbes. And now, that is truly great literature, and it never lets me down. Um, seriously, the answer is, if, if the books I'm reading, 
it might seem like a funny answer, but if the books I'm reading are are not poorly produced hmm. and therefore distracting in that way, um, then I have no problem reading for pleasure. Um, you know, working at a place where I'm suddenly thinking all the time about the actual physical and interior presentation of a book uh, makes me notice those things when I'm reading other books. Um, uh, but, uh, and the other thing that really I resent deeply and is distracting to me is end notes. Oh, one day, okay. yeah. One day, everything sad will come untrue. There will be no coronavirus. There will be no global upheaval, and there will be no end notes. Um, Amen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more with end notes. Um, what about habits of reading? Uh, when do you find yourself most productive mm -hmm. reading? Is there a certain time of the day, certain season in the year? Um, I read in snatches. I, I'm I'm not a very fast reader, and, and I'm I don't read tons, but I try to find snatches. I have five kids. Uh, so I, I start with maybe an hour or so in the morning with my Bible and, and try to do some unhurried reading. And I add, add some reading onto the end of that before other people are awake. Outside of that, Johnny, it's blips of time, um, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the day. Uh, and I, I don't know if you would testify to this. You and I are about the same age. I do find as I age, um, the, the later it is in the day, the less I can read. I mean, I, 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 I I could never read something right now after 9 p.m. and absorb it. Hmm. You find that? What, how do you go about it? Well, I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I can probably do my most productive reading from 10 o'clock to midnight when everyone's in wow. bed and I can sit downstairs and do some solid reading. I actually find I can read well in airports. I, I can be in a shopping mall or at an airport, busy, so long as I'm anonymous and nobody mm. is going to bother me. I can just sit there and dive into a book and I find I can do some of my best reading actually in a, in a busy environment. But again, I have to be, you know, anonymous, no, no, no distractions. Oh, you and I are opposite in that way too, brother. I yeah. mean, uh, put me in an airport, forget it. I'm endlessly distracted. Um, you know, I'm just keep checking my email and on my phone and, but to try to, you know, immerse myself in a book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I like reading outside. If I can be outside, okay. something yeah. about being in creation, yeah. Um, you know, now that we're into June, uh, this last month, I've done a lot of my reading outside. And that's really, really nice. Yeah. Uh, have you ever walked and read? There was a there was a lecturer at Moore College. I would see him walking on the way to work, reading books. Not, not Thankfully, not on the road, on the pavement or the sidewalk, as you call <laughs> it here. But uh, he, he and I, I actually find myself doing that sometimes if it's a if it's a safe place to actually go for a walk and take a book and read it. You are an amazing multitasker. <laughs> I don't think I could ever do that. I'd be right. walking into things or tripping up. I, I have enough trouble walking, not reading. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about, um, what do you like to read on? Do you, do you read on a Kindle? Do you prefer a paperback, hardback in your hands? I've never been able to get into the e-reading. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I want to hold a book, smell it, feel it. For me, it's a tactile experience, not just a mental one. Um, and I, you know, I, when I have to, I'll read something on a screen, but I, would you say this is true? I, I find my retention and mental absorption level decreases if it's not, if it's, if it's on a screen. Is that true for you? Yeah, it would be. I, I even find reading essays at seminary here to mark them. I have to print them out if I'm going to read yeah. them properly. I, I, there's something about scrolling 
that just right. makes for lazy, passive, fast reading. Right. But like you said earlier, good reading is slow reading. Yeah. And uh, I think there's something about a physical page in front of us, you know. Well, let me talk about uh, how do you mark things when you read, um, you know, uh, Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Dorn speak about active reading is actually very hard work and you should have a pencil in your hand. Uh, what do you do when you're reading for, say, writing a book? Uh, how do you take notes and what, what do you do? How do you mark up your book? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the reasons that I've never quite gotten in the e-reading experience. I know you can mark things up and highlight and so on, but I like to be really engaged, unless I'm reading fiction, really engaged with a pencil in my hand, underlining, um, writing stuff in the side. Um, I like to close a book, finish a book, and then put it on my shelf, and then be able in the future to flip it open and see lead all over the place. Mm. Uh, Maybe jot down special quotes uh, in the back inside cover pages that I want to go back to, um, Mm. because there's so much good stuff we read that is so easily lost, you know, just like that. So I want to retain as much as I can. And I, I, I find it more motivating to read with a pencil in my hand. I can't imagine just reading and retaining nearly as much. Yeah. Yeah. I can uh, certainly identify with that. And there's something about marking a book and you, you can actually remember where on the page, the quote yes. is, you know, you, you don't remember the page number, obviously, but you think it's bottom right somewhere in this book. Bottom right is the quote I'm looking for two years later, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so books are, are something you have been involved in. You were telling me earlier for about 10 years now. Uh, I can see behind you, you've got a number of books. Uh, do you ever over, feel overwhelmed that you've got too many books? And, and what's the point in having all these books if, you, if you're not going to read them cover to cover? Do you any um, wisdom to share with our listeners on the, the sort of guilty feeling we have of why buy another book when I'm still in the middle of one and I haven't finished the other five I got for Christmas? Johnny, did I just hear you utter the phrase too many books? <laughs> <laughs> Josiah made me put that in. I know, Josiah not, made me that, put it in. <laughs> I know not that of which you speak, brother. Um, I mean, yeah, on the one hand, the, the thought of how many excellent books I'm going to leave unread when I die is a profoundly discouraging thought. Mm. Um, but no, I'm... I don't find myself overwhelmed by having so many books and a lot of them I haven't read. I find it actually, it makes me very happy. All of these books, my books are my friends. They are. um, And uh, so I love having all, we were saying earlier offline, um, kind of having a certain section of my library in every, in all multiple rooms in my home. And um, uh, I just love it. Yeah. A friend said to me once years ago, he said, uh, you know, don't let books be your master. They're your servants. And uh, he said, you don't need to read every book cover to cover. Some books you just need to read a chapter. Some you just need to skim. And then obviously there are others you need to read analytically and deeply and cover to cover. Uh, And that really helped me. It sort of liberated me thinking I can still acquire these books. And uh, it's an argument I've been using with my wife for many years since, you know, why I'm buying so many books. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, Johnny, how do you go about it when you have so much to consume reading wise, preparing your lectures, um, serving at your church, you're reading all these papers, you have grading exams. I mean, how do you get 
how do you get your soul fed with reading you want to do, not reading you have to do? Yeah, if I'm honest, my first three and a half years, I've been here three and a half years, three and a half years of teaching, I've done very little pleasure reading. Mm. You know, I, I was thinking about it before I came to uh, work tonight to do this. That was, uh, I think I've read three or four books for pleasure in three and a half years. Mm. Um, so I, I'm trying to work out ways I can really start to carve out yeah. time for pleasure reading. Obviously, yeah. holiday periods are nice. I, I'll enjoy reading on the beach uh, on holiday. I'll I like Christmas winter time in front of the fire, mm. you know, sitting in a nice comfortable chair. <clears throat> I I can do a lot of pleasure reading there. But yeah, the first it's a bit like ministry. I think until you hit your groove in ministry right. and see him probably as a professor, you, you spend most of your time reading to get yeah. sermons written, to get books, lectures prepared, marking, etc. Yeah, I mean you're you're reading millions of words every year. It's just, but it's staying on top of what you have to do. Yeah, <clears throat> I find uh, Mortimer uh, Adler and uh, Charles Van Doren's book very helpful on how to read a book. Talk about four levels of reading: elementary, uh, skim reading, analytical reading, and syntopical. Uh, and I've learned, uh, I've got better. I think you just have to because your time's restricted at doing skim reading, where you dip into something, get the gist of it, and then can slot it into a lecture and, and move on. But you just do not have the time to read everything analytically. Uh, What's syntopical? The... Is that is that a deep dive? That's where you do deep dive uh, analytical reading in different topic areas. Okay. So it's, it's like PhD reading. You know, you're reading different articles, essays, books in different spheres of your area of research. And then you try and synthesize everything together. I, I think sermon prep is a bit syntopical mm. every week, actually, if you do in the Greek, Hebrew exegesis, yeah. reading biblical theology, systematic theology. And then you read newspapers and stuff online to try and synthesize how to apply it. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk a wee bit about books. Um, what do you think makes a book worth reading? There's a lot you could say. Um, I mean, one thing is you, a book is worth reading if you are getting into it and it is enlarging you. I mean, uh, when you open up a book, you're actually having the gift of being getting inside the mind of another human being and looking at reality through their eyes. Um, and that, so you're not just adding a little bit of data to what you know, you're actually looking at the world afresh, new, deeply. Um, and uh, there's just no experience like that in this world. So I don't myself do much rereading because if I reread a book, that means I'm sacrificing a new book I'll never read. Uh, I do that with a few books, but um, so so that's uh, to me the wonder of reading, looking at the world uh, through the eyes of another human being and being enlarged in that way. Mm, that's a lovely way of putting it. And you mentioned there are a few books you do return to. Mm -hmm. What are those? Oh, I just reread *Mere Christianity* again. Um, I go back to it time and again. Every time I find more I disagree with. And every time I think this is a, a more a more deeply wonderful book than I thought the last time I read it. Lord of the Rings, read and reread. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression. That is a book. Whether you consider yourself depressed in any sense or not, to go back to time and again, profound wisdom. 
Um, you know, a little essay that we come back to time and again at Crossway, and rightly so, is Francis Schaeffer. It's in his book, No Little People. It's the essay, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way, mm. as opposed to the Lord's work in our way. The Lord's work, good work, in our resources, strategies, and methods in the flesh. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those are a couple things I go back to time and again. Yeah. And uh, what way have you seen Crossway uh, serve the local church well? What way do you think books can really uh, build up the local church? What way have you seen pastors and, and uh, churches use books well? And what tips would you give for maybe pastors who are listening this evening? Mm. Well, serving the local church is the reason Crossway is on the planet. So I love your question. Um, all we are about is serving Christians and especially pastors and church leaders. We want to be them to be equipped, um, deepened, helped, more joyful, more fruitful. Um, I think the pastor of a church, the pastor or pastors of a church, need to lovingly control what's in the bookstore at the church, if there is one, and what the people are reading as a function of a shepherd and wanting the sheep to graze in healthy past pastures. So um, uh, I think pastors need to take that responsibility real seriously. Another thing is uh, read books together as a church. I'm rereading Knowing God by J.I. Packer right now with uh, a friend um, who paints houses at my church. Dear friend, we're in the same small group. It's wonderful. Oh, another thing, I got on a Zoom call with some guys about a month ago about five guys, and they have this practice, they have had this standing practice for a long time of just getting on a call and then reading aloud to each other, <laughs> uh, something that they've been helped by. So that'd be, that's another uh, uh, kind of obvious but wonderful discipline. Yeah, uh, lovely. Um, I was going to ask about, uh, or there, we've had some listeners uh, write in some questions. So here's a question from uh, Utah. She asks, uh, how can we foster the reading of good books amongst youth? Uh, what are some of your favorite books to read to your children? Hmm. Um, how to foster it? Turn off the screens and ignore the howls. Uh, they'll thank you in 20 years. I mean, th and this is a reality um, I was dealing with today. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Sounds fresh in your mind. That's right. I mean, we're coming off all this e-learning. Uh, from the from the lockdown and kids, and it's just reinforcing the screen addiction. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe that's not a, a real helpful thing to say while we're uh, trying to serve listeners through a screen. But yeah. um, uh, you, you can't you can't do better than Narnia. Just how could your you let your kid grow up and hit age eighteen or so and leave the home and you've never read the Narnia books to them mm. uh, um, and scripture, uh, of course. But out, outside of that, I don't actually do lots of reading to my kids. My wife does more. Um, another question from Dan. Uh, is there a danger of reading books in place of and more than reading and knowing the Bible? Hmm. I think so, don't you? I mean, you, um, Jim Hamilton at Southern Seminary has really helped me to see that as leaders in various ways in the church. Um, we have got to be people of one book, master it as much as we possibly can, read it and reread it at the level of the original languages if we are able. Um, 
and uh, 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 there's so many good books out there. It is easy, I think, to have the Bible sort of get slotted in there as one of a number of um, of things you're reading. So at the same time, you can't understand the Bible deeply if it's all you ever read. We need books such as your writing, Johnny, and others who know the Bible real well to um, uh, to help us understand the Bible. So it's a matter of priority and the, the Bible itself being the bullseye of what we are giving ourselves to in our reading energies and then going out from that center, uh, reading other things that help us understand it. Yeah, and uh, that's great. Uh, let's talk now about a specific Bible, and that is the ESV, which you're uh, the vice president of that uh, department within Crossway of uh, ensuring the ESV is getting out there to people. Uh, wh when was the ESV first produced? 2001. Okay, and uh, how many updates have there been uh, during that period? Uh, three, you know, not revisions, but just very, very light um, mm -hmm. tweakings, um, getting a few things a, a bit sharper, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. and uh, is there anything else in store for the ESV? Any other uh, new ESV Bibles in the pipeline that you can tell us about? Any exciting developments well, there? Um, we 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 want to avoid what I like to call the crass proliferation of niche Bibles. Uh, people can uh, publishing houses can use the Bible in a way that actually undermines the presented value of it by creating, you know, the Bible for cat lovers and this kind of thing. But uh, we want to create the we want to publish the Bible in meaningful, dignified, beautiful ways. We have a conviction at Crossway about. Uh, if this is what we say it is, if this is the eternal word of God, let's present it accordingly. Uh, one Bible I'm, I'm excited about is something we're calling a historical study Bible. Basically, uh, a study Bible, but all the notes commenting on the, the text are from the dead guys. Hmm. So it's the Reformers, it's the Puritans, it's others who are the church fathers um, commenting on the text. So that'll be a fun one to, to put together. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. Sounds like a great resource for pastors in particular. Right. They uh, do their sermon prep. OK, let's move from um, the Bible to speak about your book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, the Heart of Christ for uh, Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, what uh, compelled you to write this book, Dean? Mm. Discovering under Thomas Goodwin's coaching, Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan 400 years ago, that I was, I was following a junior, a junior varsity Jesus, uh, an image in my mind that was, I, I think I see now, uh, a shell of who the real Jesus is. Mike Reeves wrote a little uh, article for a campus ministry on a, on a, a website that at the time it was called Theology Network. I don't know if it's still going. Um, quoting Goodwin. It was basically a short article with a bunch of quotes from Goodwin's book, The Heart of Christ. Uh, you know, the Puritan title is much longer, but, um, and I read that little article from Mike, and then I got the Puritan paperback, The Heart of Christ from Banner, and read that, and I still have not picked myself up off the ground. I thought, holy smoke, can this be true? Uh, might Jesus Christ actually be like that and not like what I thought he was like for me, for messy, faltering me? Um, and, uh, uh, so it was really good when that dropped the, 
pebble into my heart. Okay, so that was a number of years ago. Uh, how long did it actually take you to to write the book? You know, from the very beginning where the spark is lit uh, to light the fire to think I want to do this and to actually getting the book in your hands. Mm. It feels like seven years because I was just reading and reading. I, I started with Goodwin, got his 12 volumes. And uh, when it is Sibs got his seven volumes. I'm not saying I've read every page of these, but just work through as I'm able. Um, a lot of Owen. And I, I let the Puritans deconstruct my, um, my, my two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional view of who Jesus was. Um, but then, Johnny, I mean, I, you've written books. I don't know if you can testify to this, but it, it was a couple months, really, of then getting it all out there mm. um, uh, on the page. Um, but I could, I could, uh, I could never have tried to write that in those couple of months if I hadn't been sort of storing up in my heart and mind what I was reading uh, since 2013 in the Puritans. Yeah. So tell us about your your creative process then. So you're, you're obviously reading for a couple of years, and then you get to those few months where you sort of download it and go for it. It's sort of uh, sitting on the tip of your tongue or the tip of your pen or mm -hmm. your fingers waiting to be typed. What's your actual process? Do you outline a book first and think, right, I want these number of chapters and this is the way I want to organize that chapter? Or do you just get onto a section of Goodwin and a Bible verse and think, right, I, I feel inspired today. I'm just going to pump mm. this out now. Mm. What's your writing process like? Mm. For this book, it really was just um, sort of uh, everything got filled up in my mind and heart and I'd taken notes in what I had read um, so I knew where to go to find some of my, the best quotes and this kind of thing. Um, but uh, I basically, Johnny, sat down, wrote the, I did this at the proposal stage, wrote a table of contents, chapter title, paragraph for each one. And then when it came to actually writing the book, um, I knew the subject of a chapter and I knew the one quote from a Goodwin or a Warfield or whoever that I was going to drop in there at the right time. And then I just very slowly, slowly wrote that chapter because I wanted to get it just right. Um, so that's how it worked. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've enjoyed about your style of writing is the brevity. Um, uh, it, it reminded me of a story I heard of uh, Winston Churchill when he was invited to speak somewhere, he spoke for 40 minutes. And at the end, he said, I, I must apologize for speaking for so long. Uh, I didn't have much time to prepare. <laughs> I think that's uh, every pastor or preacher knows what he's talking about there, because short sermons are actually harder work than long sermons. And I think short books like yours with sort of uh, short chapters, uh, pithy sentences, uh, it's hard work. Or is it? Did, did, does that style come naturally to you or was that something you had to adapt for the audience that you wanted to write for in this case? As you know, it is hard work, Johnny. I mean, um, I, I had never done it quite like this before with short chapters. Uh, I probably could have written a book twice as long in half the time. It is harder to, to be more compact and concise. But I just asked myself, hey, what kind of book would I want to read? Hmm. What I want to read on this subject? And, um, and I sat down and said, yeah, that's what I would like to read. Something with, you know, I can collapse into bed at the end of the day and, um, and I, can, I can read four or five pages. 
you know, and um, and uh, so that's what I did. Yeah, I think that's what's so brilliant about it is it's a book that you can pick up uh, if you don't have much time. You can read a chapter or even two in the short period, or if you've got three hours, you can actually get through a half or more of the book. You yeah. know, um, but it's it's so the short chapters just keep you clipping along, and if you don't have much time, you can just get back to it when you do have more time. You know, uh, what what's the most enjoyable part of the writing process for you? Is it um, you, when you first get that spark to do the book and you outline it? Is it uh, foraging for a good one quote? Is it finding a footnote and filling it in that you needed? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it uh, the is it getting the proofs, the hard copy proofs, where they say please edit this and then it's off to the publisher? Wh- which is the most enjoyable part of the writing process for you? All of what you said is fun, but um, easily the most enjoyable part, and I know you will be in profound solidarity with me, brother, is hitting send with a big attachment off to the publisher. Uh, The the day or the day before my contract says that thing is due. I mean, I love writing. I love, 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 love writing. I I feel subhuman if too much time goes by and I don't write something. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's profoundly satisfying, but it is a labor. It is a labor. Uh, to do the best you can anyway. You know, you can you, you can crank something out going at 80% uh, of your capacity. Um, and some authors should stop doing that. Uh, but to do your best, to do your very best, the best you can do, uh, that's hard, hard work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I uh, was fortunate to have uh, R.P. Gordon as my supervisor at Cambridge. He was the Regis Professor of Hebrew. And I remember him making a comment to me. He said, the last 10% of writing is the editing process of what you've written. He said, but if you do it properly, it takes 50% of the time of writing. And uh, it's always stuck with me. And then he said, you know, there's so much bad edited stuff out there. He says, you know, in my Feshrift, Yahweh goes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments from Moses. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, he says, he says, how did an editor not get that? Catch that you know? <laughs> but uh, his point was that editing done well is 50 percent of the time. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. But, yes, uh, for me, it's the you get the proofs and then I go to a library somewhere. Again, nobody knows me and I just get lost in fixing this or that. That, that for me is the really enjoyable part because it, it's mm-hmm. just nearly finished. I'm aware it's still a lot of editing, but I'm I'm nearly there. I can see the finish line, you know. And then, as you say, that uh, press pressing that send on the email with the attachments just so satisfying. Mm. Yeah. Um. So for those who haven't read the book, Dean, uh, give us your thirty-second elevator pitch on what is this book actually about? Mm. Well, I, I guess here's what I would say to that brother. Um, if if you are a Christian and you ever find yourself thinking, why can I not get my act together? What's wrong with me? Um, if you believe, and I don't mean what you confess doctrinally on paper, but functionally, actually, street level, if you believe that in your deepest, you know, in your deepest heart that as one united to Christ, that he is pushed away from you in your sin and in your anguish. And we all believe that until a Thomas Goodwin or someone comes along and sets us free from that, 
I mean, the Christian life, I think, is the lifelong shedding of the dark thoughts of God we are born with, um, then this book is for you. Hmm. Uh, at each chapter, you have a Bible verse. It's a short verse. Yeah. Uh, throw some examples out. Matthew eleven twenty nine. I am hmm. gentle and lowly in heart, which you've based hmm. your book on. Uh, Hebrews four fifteen. We do yeah. not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Lamentations three thirty three. He does not afflict from the heart. Um, every chapter has a Bible verse. Was there some Bible verses that became your favorite, or they were your favorite chapters to write, or actually were some of your favorite verses the hardest chapter to write? Huh. You know, the, you cannot do any of those texts that you just rattled off. You can't do any of them justice. It's infuriating to try to write on texts like that. Uh, to preach them, you would feel the same almost uh, righteous frustration. You, you just can't do it justice. But I took the title of the book, of course, from those words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. They are unutterably wonderful. I mean, would those not be a candidate, Johnny, for the greatest word, the most wondrous words ever to have been uttered by human lips? I am gentle and lowly in heart. Um, that verse need, needed a book. Uh, and so that's, I mean, Hebrews 4.15 is the one that, that Goodwin wrote the heart of his book, The Heart of Christ, on. You know how the Puritans, of course, would write a book. They take a single verse, wring it dry, and three or 400 pages later, send off what they wrote. One verse, looking at it from every angle. Um, I, I wasn't quite so bold. But Matthew 11, 29, come on, who, who of us has really dialed that into our heart? That's a verse to press into our soul our whole lives long. Um, it, it, it's that wonderful. Yeah, uh, I love the little sort of statistic that you gave related to it that Charles Spurgeon said yes. that of, in all the Gospels, it's the only time Jesus reveals what his heart is like. Yeah, my dad pointed that out to me, Johnny. Isn't yeah. that an amazing insight? I mean, yeah. we, we know a lot about how he understood himself to fulfill the Old Testament. We know a lot about who he ate with. We know a lot about the, the castigations that he pronounced on various religious elite people. But in the one place where he opens himself up and lets him lets us peer way down deep into the heart of the, the core of what makes him tick, that that's what he says, gentle and lowly. It's an astounding claim. Yeah. As I read it, I felt like I was listening in on a conversation between you, a few reformers, mainly Puritans, as you all sort of had a conversation together about what these mm. wonderful texts of Scripture said. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed most in the book was having these quotes by Goodwin, Bunyan, Owen, Flavel, Calvin, Warfield, Edwards. Um, was, is there a particular quote, one or two, that really captured you as you wrote the book? And you, you would mm. say, right, that's getting to the heart of what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, that's like asking me, Dane, which of your kids is your favorite? Um, <laughs> I mean, well, the, when Goodwin is talking in his book, The Heart of Christ, the, the slightly fuller title, The Heart of Christ who is, who is in Heaven Toward Sinners Who Are on Earth. Is that gorgeous or what? And he, he says at one point, reflecting on Hebrews 4.15, about Christ being able to sympathize, he says, uh, th this text, uh, something like, this text is Jesus Christ taking our hands 
and laying them on his own chest and letting us, he's saying, this is what Hebrews 4.15 is. It's a taking, and letting us uh, feel how his heart beats for us and his affections yearn for us, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one's hard to beat. You know, yeah. another favorite uh, of mine, I buried it in a footnote. My friend Drew Hunter, who's a pastor in Indianapolis, pointed this out to me. Uh, not a Puritan, but uh, a lesser known, uh, I think, 19th century Presbyterian pastor, Benjamin Grosner. Mm-hmm. This, this is a quote every pastor should, should cite at least annually in a sermon. He says, um, I've got it here, Benjamin Grosner, he says, if you meet uh, that poor wretch, he's sort of talking as if Jesus is speaking. If you meet that poor wretch that thrusts the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. Uh, If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced, I will cherish him, the words of Christ sort of, uh, I will cherish him in that very bosom he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of of shedding it, and tell him from me he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. That's how to to preach. That's how to talk about Christ and who he most deeply is. Yeah. I find myself, as I was reading it, that, that was one of the quotes that really deeply mm. moved me. And, and also, you know, asterisks and Q, I, I always put a Q at the side of my mm. column if I want to quote something in the future. Uh, there were so many quotes like that that I thought for pastors in particular, um, it, they're so preachable, you know, right. you can slot these things into a sermon very nicely. Um, let me talk about one or two chapters. Um, yeah. Chapter eight uh, begins, one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today is the heavenly intercession of Christ. Uh, what is the heavenly intercession of Christ, and why do you think we've neglected it? Wow. Christ's intercession is his real-time application in the court of heaven uh, before the Father of his once-and-for-all atoning work. So he accomplished salvation 2,000 years ago, um, but he is applying it today. It's the answer to the question, what is Jesus doing now? I mean, wouldn't you say we we tend to think about the the, the work, the, the ministry of Jesus as kind of the resurrection being the final chapter, the caboose of it. Oh, maybe we think about the ascension, but actually keep going, intercession. Uh, as for why it's neglected, who knows? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't really know. The old timers talked about it. Bunyan wrote two books, yeah. uh, different books, one on 1 John to one on Christ's advocacy, uh, another on Hebrews 7.25 about Christ saving to the uttermost through intercession. Romans 8 talks about it as well. So it's clearly there in the Bible, but yeah. we don't really talk about it. Do you, is it, is it on your theological mental horizon and those circles that you run in, Johnny? Well, more so now that I'm ordained and I've, you know, come into the reformed world a bit more and read more. But I think what it is, is maybe we've been a bit reductionistic in the way we've spoken about Christ's work. Mm that it, it's, it's all centered on the cross. It is right. finished. We take words like, I think, right, that's the work done. The resurrection is just the vindication. And then yeah. but the real work was the cross. And of course, it, it's central, but it's the cross, resurrection, ascension. Yes. Uh, you know, his passive obedience was 
suffering from his earliest days right up to the climactic moment of suffering. And his obedience was even in the womb. Uh, I, my heart is trusted in you, O oh God. And then all the way to the cross when he's still trusting his father, even up to the point of his death. Um, so I, I think sometimes we've just reduced <clears throat> the work of Christ to that moment uh, on the cross rather than seeing his life, death, resurrection, ascension. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> another aspect uh, that I thought you brought out really beautifully is chapter 11, uh, where you begin one of the doctrines in the area of Christology that is difficult for Christians to fully grasp is the permanent humanity of Christ, in particular, his emotional life. Mm. Um, and you have that lovely part, a uh, quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 49, uh, we have our own flesh in heaven. Amazing. Briefly, can you prize out what it is about the emotional life of Christ that we need to appreciate more? I think in our reformed world especially, we get nervous about this. Um, B.B. Warfield wasn't nervous about it and wrote a lengthy, substantive, justly famous article uh, on the emotional life of our Lord, where he draws out the emotion, anger, he and and, and uh, joy, and then he says the dominant impression left in our mind when we're done uh, reading the four Gospels actually is that of compassion, the um, the the bowels. Uh, of Christ. We don't use that word anymore uh, to speak of compassion, but um, and, and something is lost about, something is diminished in our view of Christ if we just treat him and think of him and write about him and preach of him and disciple about him as a lofty, dignified, um, sort of unmoved and unmoving kind of uh, figure. Um, he was fully, Hebrews is very clear, fully human, minus sin, bracket out sin, in every other way, fully human. And this is a really consoling thing for us, because it means in our anguish, in our suffering, um, Christ is, is, is in solidarity with us. He's with us in that. He's been down that path. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, I learned a number of things uh, from this book. I, I, I learned that little statistic about uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine being the only place Jesus reveals his heart mm. to us. Um, it was Philip Melanchthon's favorite verse. I didn't know that. Mm. Um, I, I love the bit about the logic in, of Isaiah 55, where the, uh, ah. for his, his ways are not our ways, uh, his thoughts, not our thoughts. You know, we tend to think of that as God's providence when suffering comes yeah. into our lives and his ways are not our ways. And when actually it's about God being so compassionate to people who have sinned again. Yes. Uh, that, that was a real, you know, learning point for me. And then uh, Ephesians 2, 4, it's the only place in the whole Bible where God is said to be rich in anything. Right. Uh, he's rich in mercy. Uh, so I, I learned, uh, that's just a few things. I learned many others, but what, tell us one or two things. Uh, that you learned in writing the book that you hadn't it hadn't dawned on you before some aspect mm. maybe of Christ's person or his heart mm. what did you learn in writing this book yeah well the first thing that's coming to mind right now brother is is the um, the way that the Bible at times and the Puritans unfold this will speak of um, will speak of God's judgment as his strange work, Isaiah 28 says, 
whereas, uh, but of God's compassion and mercy as something that in some sense is is more is, is his natural work. It pours out from him, prick God, so to speak, and this is what gushes forth most naturally. Now, we, we, do, we want to be very cautious here. Proceed carefully. We do not want to impugn the doctrine of divine simplicity or impassibility. But as I've as I read books to make sure I wasn't uh, saying anything funny in talking about God and Christ, books on divine simplicity, I found the conversations often very philosophical and analytical and even um, sort of speculative. And I just wanted to sit down and say, okay, what does the Bible say? I want to be aware of the conversations philosophically, but what does the Bible say? And it says things like Lamentations 3, right at the pinnacle, the height, the center of the book, that he does not afflict or grieve the children of men from his heart. So we have to do justice to that. And and uh, so seeing the, um, God is perfectly simple, but seeing the way mercy, you mentioned rich in mercy, not middle class in mercy. Nowhere is he said to be rich in justice, though he is perfectly just. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the way that, that mercy, compassion springs, he's spring-loaded. He's almost hardwired. I, I, I don't want to be careful how I speak here, but to do that, that just came home to me in a, mm. a new way. The Puritans convinced me of it. They showed it to me in the Bible. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it was uh, a very uh, fascinating chapter of that one. I um, love to chat further by plumbing the depths of it. It's, it's really amazing how some of the Puritans open that, open that up. I remember the quote by Jonathan Edwards that... Um, uh, yes. Jud- judgment is his strange work and mercy, his natural work. You know? Right. Um, uh, any hymns that came to your mind as you were writing this book? As I read it, I had two hymns. At times I wanted to sort of sing uh, and praise my Savior. Uh, John Newton's How Sweet the Name of Jesus mm. Signs in a Believer's Ear. Uh, it soothes its sorrows, heals its wounds, and drives away its fears. Uh, and a contemporary song by City of Light, Jesus Strong and Kind. Uh, Jesus said, if I thirst, I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. And I thought that, you know, that sort of connected with the theme verse of come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Was there any song, hymn that for you captures the book that you think that that's, that's something that I would love people to sing as a result of reading this book? Well, maybe it's my own ignorance of hymnody or something, but I don't really see us singing about this. Um, you know, was it Matt Boswell who, who wrote the um, His Mercy is More song, inspired by the Newton quote? That one gets at it. That City of Light song, Jesus Strong and Kind, one of my colleagues sent that to me, sent me the YouTube link a couple months ago. I said, holy smokes, this is, this is really getting at it too. Mm. But Johnny... We need to have some hymns written. I mean, Bob Coughlin, you know, someone, Keith Getty. Let's 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 give vent to this through the the sung. I mean, we don't. It demands to be sung, uh, to sing Christ's deepest heart uh, uh, with you. As I think about this theme, as I see it in the Scripture, it, it requires poetry, not just prose. Yeah, yeah, and and. I, I pray that uh, songs do arise out of this book. Well, Dan, you have been, um, uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, 
chat with you and uh, discuss some of these themes with you. Um, is there something you would love to say to folk listening tonight about this book? Well, you know, if you have a parting comment or thought, what do you hope people take away from reading the book? Um, uh, or why should they buy it? Oh, um, well, don't you want to be a happy Christian? I mean, you don't want to be miserable, do you? So get, get clear on who Jesus is. You don't have to go through security to get to him. You don't have to get a, take a ticket and get in line. Uh, he's, he is, might it just be true that in our deepest regions of shame and regret, that that's where God loves us the most? Mm. I think the Bible gives us, encourages, insists that we do believe that. So um, it's not, this book, I don't view it, Johnny, really as for a certain kind of person or a certain, uh, you know, demographic in the church. It's for the, It's for any of us who are, uh, who, who easily and quickly get exhausted with life and disgusted with ourselves. In other words, it's for all of us. Um, who of us does is not panting for Matthew eleven twenty nine every morning when we roll out of bed and that kind of savior which we can never make up we never would have thought this up hmm. um, but this is who Jesus himself claims to be so this is just wonderful hmm. um, and uh, so if the book serves people then I'll rejoice well I I think it's a book that every Christian should read at least once in their lifetime. And uh, the reason for that is because I think it's quite a life-changing book. It's a paradigm-shifting book uh, when you start to really realize Jesus's heart for his people on earth from heaven, um, to, to sort of allude to Goodwin there. Hmm. Uh, it really is, I think, life-changing. I also think it's a book that pastors should have a stack of in their office hmm. so that when they're counseling uh, people, I was thinking today, if I ever went back into ministry, I, I would want to have a stack of these in my office. And as I counsel saints who are struggling with their sin, saints who are in anguish and grief at the brokenness of the world, to say, here, take this book and read it. It'll lift your spirit. It'll help you through the valley uh, of the shadow of death. It'll help you out of your sin and uh, point you not to your sin and to yourself, but to your Savior. Amen. Um, so I, I'm hoping that, you know, every Christian at some point in their life uh, will pick it up. Two quotes that struck me, and they're two quotes from yourself, Dean, two parts of the book. Uh, it is the sun of Christ's heart, not the clouds of my sin that now defines me. Mm. I think that's a beautiful comment for us as we struggle with our sin. And then for those struggling with suffering, if God sent his son to walk through the valley of condemnation, rejection and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to heaven. I think those two quotes capture the subtitle of this book, uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. So, Dan, it's been a pleasure having you on this inaugural episode of The Afterword, a, an online conversation about reading books in the church. And uh, thanks very much for joining us. We hope oh, we'll what? have you back a, on to talk about book Bibles maybe another time. But Anytime. What a, what a joy to do this, um, Johnny, to, to have a conversation with you and a, a few other people. Listen in. Um, really fun. Thanks for doing this. Uh, I just appreciate you guys so very much. That's great. Well, thank you. And uh, I'm going to hand back to Josiah, who's going to tell us uh, who's coming up on the next episode.
Uh, thank you, Johnny and Dane, for, for joining us uh, tonight. And thank you all who, who uh, joined us live and uh, kind of came with us on this experiment, uh, the first time we've ever uh, done something like this. Uh, so thank you. We really do uh, pray that it has been a, a beneficial time for you. Um, just wanted to remind you that um, we will be posting this episode uh, to our YouTube channel, so you can uh, check out wtsbooks.com slash afterward uh, to find, find out more information there. Uh, I also wanted to announce that um, we will be having uh, David Murray on as ep on episode two tonight, um, coming up in, in a few weeks. So if you check back to wtsbooks.com slash afterward, we'll have We'll have more information there about episode two. Uh, finally, a special thanks tonight for, for Crossway for sharing their Bible publisher with us for an evening and, and for sponsoring the giveaway. Um, and yeah, I, thanks again for, for taking the time to join us tonight. We pray that it has been a beneficial time, and uh, we hope to see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>